0: All right. Well, uh, a couple of little preliminaries as we dive in. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to um, uh, let's go to First Corinthians chapter six. <laughs> Keep having to think about this. First um, uh, Corinthians chapter six. And uh, excuse me, I got to get something here. And as you're turning there, just a, just a, a couple of quick things. I, I want this to be a civil conversation, okay? I mean, if you don't like where I land on this issue, you either think I'm too conservative or too liberal, Um then we're, gonna, we're still going to be civil about that, and if we want to make a, a big ruckus about it, then if you do that, then you'll be asked to leave, um, and we'll be escorted out of here. I don't imagine that's going to be a problem, but I just want to make you aware of that. Second of all, it's going to be a little longer than usual. Uh, I just want to warn you of that right up front, and so buckle up, because there's a lot of information that I want to go through to try and help us get our heads around this situation. And then, um, and then after this service, I did it last night, we'll do it after this service. For those of you who care to, this not, we're not going to lock the doors and make you stay. Uh, if you want to leave, that's fine, but we're going to give about a two-minute break once we're done, and then you'll have a chance to ask uh, questions. We'll, we'll put a phone number up on the on the screen here and then you can text your questions in cuz i some of you may want to remain anonymous and that's totally fine. I know I know sometimes these can be ticklish and so i and i'm just here to serve you. I don't think I'm an expert in this. I'm just if i can help us think through and maybe i don't answer some questions that come up with for you as you listen to this and i want to make sure that we do that and and serve you in that way. Okay? So uh, hold your questions and we'll we'll try to answer them uh, at the end. You'll be, you'll be able to go if you want to, but for those who want to stay, we'll, we'll let you do that. And then finally, uh, we have a resource center outside, a lot of great stuff, hats and shirts and all that. We also have some great uh, resources, books and things. And one of the things I asked them to order for this week is this great little book called Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, by a guy named Sam Alberry. And the answer, just so we're all clear, is no, God is not anti-gay. And uh, Sam Alberry is a... Um, uh, is, is a, a minister in England, um, a Christian, and a man who very honestly confesses that he, to the present day, <clears throat> struggles with uh, same-sex attraction. And I think he does a very good job. It's really more of a booklet of, of walking through kind of some of, you know, the biblical, he, what, what Sam is committed to is submitting himself to Scripture. And I love that about him. There's a couple of books out there like that. And um, and so I, I want to encourage you. If this is something you have more questions about, or just a resource that you want to have, we don't have a ton of copies. If there's more demand than we have out there, we'll get more, order them, and have them here next week. But they're they're cheap. I think we're selling them. I don't, I don't know. Don't don't quote me on this. I think they're like five dollars. But uh, we're not we're not making money on this. And uh, and so we just want to make them a resource. If you can't afford that but you want one, let them know. Uh, we will we will give you one. Okay. So we just want to put resources in your hand like that. Okay. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to start kind of like we started last week and and focus in on the gospel. So let's read verses 9 through 11 together. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, now, what I want to start with is yes, this deals with homosexuality, but I don't want to start there. I want to start with the gospel. And I want you to see what Paul says right off the bat. He tells us, he tells us something about this real church in a real place with real people, This city called Corinth. There's this church that had come up because he went on a missionary journey there and people got saved and he looks and he tells us something amazing about this church. He says, in this church are people who said, man, my, my former, who I formerly was, I was a swindler, I was greedy, I was homosexual, that's what I was, but now look at what happened. They were washed and sanctified, and justified. See, when the power of the gospel comes. It doesn't sweep in its wake people who have their act together. It goes and it dives down into our sin and it meets us there. And notice, it's not that we wash ourselves. We're not the one doing it. God comes and he washes it, right? He says, you were washed. I didn't wash myself. Jesus washed me. You were sanctified. I didn't make myself holy. Jesus did that. You were justified. I didn't declare myself righteous. Jesus declared me righteous through the cross God did that all for me this is what the gospel does that's the power it reaches into my life I don't clean up my act first and come to Jesus he comes to me in the midst of my sin scrapes me up off the bottom and rescues me and saves me now now why do I want to start with that in the back of our minds that is kind of the foundation of what we're talking about for two reasons first I want to be a church like this I want to be a church that we can look around and say, man, look at what God has done. Look at how he's redeemed people. Look at how he's saved people. Look at these people from all these different backgrounds. These people who struggled with all these sins. God has done that. I want to be a a place where where justified sinners are battling together in purity despite all of our sinful inclinations. Because we all are inclined towards sin. A church where sexual strugglers, where swindlers, were greedy, Where people are disobedient to parents, you're going to see, I mean, all these things that we can come together and overcome those sins or learn to live in the struggle in a, a community that is full of grace and love and support and it's joy-filled and God-honoring. And second, I start that way because I, I want to say it again, you can out, cannot out-sin the grace of God. That God's grace goes deeper than all of those things. I mean, sexual morality, adultery. I mean, whatever sin you find or have found yourself caught up in, the cross of Christ went deeper than that. And that's what you've got to see today. That's where I don't want to move very far away from that today. Now, the issue of homosexuality is a massive issue in our culture. I mean, there's hardly a week that goes by where there's some, not some news headline or some controversy that rises up over the issue of homosexuality, whether it's, you know, Phil Robertson and Duck Dynasty or somebody on ESPN getting fired or somebody who said something they shouldn't say or a law being passed in some state. Something is happening and we're being barraged with this. And so, listen, it, it is incumbent upon me, I feel a constraint of the Holy Spirit that we have to talk about this. Like, well, like, we've got to try to understand. We need to understand what the Bible says about this issue. If we're Christian, then we want to have all of our thinking informed by the Bible. So what I want to do is give you as much Bible as I can, and there's a lot of information that we've got to wrestle through and deal with some of the arguments that are, that are going on where people will say, I'll use my Bible, but, but we've got to deal with that. I want, to, I want to bring this out and say, okay, here's what's going on. Then I want to deal with some of the common questions that arise around this topic, and then I want us to try and understand how we, how you individually, and how we should respond to this issue in our culture, okay? So so we'll start with what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Uh, This, again, it's a huge issue, and there are some that would say essentially this, that the church has been reading their Bibles wrong for 2,000 years, Essentially, you've got it wrong. You don't understand the language. You don't understand the history, and so you've been interpreting it inaccurately so that it is possible for us to reconcile Christianity and homosexuality. It is possible for a person to say, I am gay and a Christian. Uh, And and these are not incompatible things at all. So, for example, some of you might have heard the name Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines is a young man. He went to Harvard. He left his home in Wichita, struggled with same-sex attraction, gets to Harvard, sees how open people are in talking about homosexuality, decides he's going to take a break from Harvard in 2010. He goes home. He spends the next two years, according to him, studying what the Bible really has to say about homosexuality. And in March of 2012, he stood up in front of his congregation where he had grown up Christian church, and he spoke to his congregation about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And here, I'm going to quote from him. This is what he says in his sermon. He says, this is what he says to Bible-believing Christians. Okay, ready? He says, you are taking a few verses out of context and extracting from them an absolute condemnation that was never intended. But you are also striking at the core of another human being and gutting them of their sense of dignity and of self-worth. You are reinforcing the message that gay people have heard for centuries. You will always be alone. You come from a family, but you'll never form one of your own. You are uniquely unworthy of loving and being loved by another person and all because you're different because you're gay. So he is a gay Christian, in his words, and he says that what we should be doing is when we look at our Bibles, we should understand homosexuality as, in his words, quote, an impulse toward excess, in the same way that eating is not wrong until it becomes gluttony. uh, Drinking wine is not wrong until it turns to drunkenness, and he says this is how we should understand homosexuality. It's not wrong unless it's excessive. It's not wrong unless it's exploitive. It's not wrong until whatever. This year, Matthew Vines will come out with a book that gives his argument. I fully anticipate that within a week or two, it will be on the New York Times bestseller list. I have no doubt. So I want to make something clear today. My goal is not to win an argument or a debate. I want to look at Scripture Be as honest as I'm able with what it says. I want to know if 2,000 years of church history is wrong. I want to be sure I'm not taking, as he says, a few verses out of context and then condemning all gay people with proof proof text. I I don't want to deprive one person of their dignity and label them as unlovable. Let me say it out loud. If you are gay, if you are lesbian, if you struggle with any sexual uh, sin, I, I want to say to you right now, we love you and I am so glad you're here. But listen, why would anyone want to pick up their Bible and misinterpret it at the expense of people? Why would anyone want to create a sexual prohibition that simply is not in Scripture? I I don't, I don't want to have that fight. So I want to look and just start tracing it the way that it's unveiled in Scripture And see if we can't understand, kind of get our arms around what the Bible is saying. Okay, so to start there, start with that. Let's turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 19. Now, I I, I should, to be honest with you, I just don't have time. I should go all the way back to Genesis 1. God creates a man and a woman. He calls them male and female. He brings the male and female together. This reason a man shall leave his his mother and father will cling to his wife, the two will become one flesh. So there's marriage and God says, here's the context into which sexuality and human sexuality should be exercised within the context of marriage. Paul's gonna pick up on the same thing. This is foundational to everything we're talking about. Sin enters the world in in Genesis chapter 3, and everything gets broken from that point on, and then we start to deal with the fallout. So we get to Genesis chapter 19, and here's what's going on. These two angels have shown up to Abraham, and and they start to say, hey, we're going to go to Sodom, we're going to destroy it. Abraham kind of does this negotiation with God, like, hey, what if there's 100 righteous people, what about 50, what about 40, what it gets all the way down to, like, if you find 10, I mean, will you destroy it? God says, no, I won't destroy it. The angels go to Sodom. They pay it a visit. They want to see what's going on. They, hey, we're, we're going to kind of sleep outside here in the courtyard, whatever, for, for the night. So, Lot sees them, says, oh, no, 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 you don't want to be outside at night. Come inside with us. And we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what a lot of people are going to say is that, see, here's the problem with you. You don't understand your Bible. You just don't understand what you're reading. So they will read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and say, you've got it all wrong. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality, was not sexual sin. It was a sin of inhospitality. Okay, so... So I just heard it the other night on on Piers Morgan. Again, I mean, I I heard this. This is a very very common argument that you're going to hear. Now, is that true? Let's start reading in verse 4. So he invites them inside in verse 4 of chapter 19. But before they lay down, that is the two angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, get the idea? Everyone is at the door, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, stop there because the word at issue here is the word know. Okay? Now, if you read your Bible and you're reading the ESV or the King James Version, that is actually what it says. It says that that is it. That's how it's translated. That's translating the Hebrew exactly as it reads. And it's the word know. So people say, okay, well, what does know mean? Well, we know from Scripture, reading it, that no very often refers to sex. It's a euphemism for sex. So Adam knew his wife Eve. Abraham knew Sarah. David knew Bathsheba. Okay, so that's all through Scripture. We know that word no is sometimes a euphemism for sex. Can it also be uh, meaning to get acquainted with? Of course it can. Yes, that's how it's used sometimes. So what people are going to say is, no, what? What these men wanted was to get acquainted with the two men inside of Lot's house. Okay, so let's, let's keep reading and see if that's legitimate. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. So just picture it. Okay, he walks out, click, standing in front of my door, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, if, two, if a group of people showed up at my house and says, man, can we come in Just to get to know your family, my response would not be, do not act so wickedly. I'd be like, well, it's not a good time. We're having dinner or whatever. I mean, maybe, but no, or or come on in, sure. Behold, I have two daughters. I mean, look what Lot does. I have two daughters who have not. Known any man? You're going to find out later. He's got sons-in-laws. He's not saying they have not been acquainted with the male part of the species or have not got acquainted with other men. No, we know that they, they lived in the city. They know other people in a get-to-know-you way. Who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. Do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my roof. I shall do nothing to them. But but they said, stand back. And talking about lots of this fellow came to sojourn to become the judge. Now we'll deal with you worse than them, okay? So, so, so is it inhospitality? No. It, it can't possibly be inhospitality. There's something else going on here. So some of you will go, okay, fine. It's not inhospitality. We'll give you that. Then what must be going on here? It's not so much that there's a condemnation of sexual immorality or homosexuality. It's a condemnation of gang rape. Okay, because I mean, the whole town of men show up and say, we want these guys. So they're gonna gang rape these two men. Is that what's going on? Well, I don't think so because if you turn all the way back and I'll just show it you on the board to Jude, chapter, uh, Jude 7. Jude is just one chapter. It's right before the book of Revelation. And listen to how Jude interprets what happens in, the, in Genesis 19. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So for Jude, the issue is not inhospitality. The, for Jude, it was not gang rape. For Jude, he says there was sexual immorality going on here, and he calls it the pursuit of unnatural desire. And I'm gonna deal with that in a minute, okay? But at the very least, what we have to say is that Genesis 19 is not about gang rape. Genesis 19 is not about inhospitality. It's about homosexuality. It's about sexual morality. okay? Now, Let's keep going. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 18. So this is within the law. It's in what's called, we, we would sort of subdivide the law, and this is part that would be called uh, the holiness code. And you get to chapters 18 through 20, and part of what you read in chapters 18 through 20 are this. Look at verse 22 of Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, okay? If we keep reading, it'd say don't lie with an animal, Uh, He talks about incest, talks about all kinds of different things, right? Turn over to chapter 20 and verse 13. If a man lies with a males with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So God describes and he says this this sin that he's describing, okay, whatever it is for the time being, let's say whatever that is, is an abomination. That is not a word that's just thrown around in Scripture. They're not just calling anything an abomination. Okay. In fact, it's, it's reserved for f- very egregious things. Most often it's used in connection with idolatry, which has led some people to say, aha, then what God is really not pleased with is homosexual activity or sexual immorality that swirls around cultic idolat- uh, idolatrous worship that's what's going on it's not a condemnation of homosexuality per se as it is so much a condemnation of cultic prostitution or something like that but that is simply not what leviticus says nowhere does it limit its constraints right it doesn't limit the context to temples or prostitution it just says this should not happen Moreover, just read. Read chapters 18 through 20, and and you'll see what I'm talking about. Surrounding those verses are prohibitions of other types of sexual immorality, including incest, including adultery, including bestiality, and none of those has anything. We would never say that adultery is only wrong if it's around idolatry. No, he says, no, it's, it's, it's this categorical, there are acts that are wrong irrespective of who is doing them or where they are doing them. Well, then maybe what's prohibited here is forced homosexual sex or rape. Okay, so maybe that's what Leviticus is after, but Leviticus chapter 20, you can't come away and say that because it says that if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and the Bible never condemns the rape victim. I mean, you talk about a lack of justice. Somebody rapes you, and if you live in the Old Testament, both of you get stoned to death. Both of you are executed. No, no. That's not, that's not what's happening at all, right? So, so, so obviously God is referring to consensual homosexual sex, and God says it's forbidden. So then some will say, All right, Chris, then here's the problem. What you conservative Christian folk do is you just cherry pick what you don't, what you do like and don't like from the Old Testament. Like right now, Chris, you are probably wearing a poly-cotton blend shirt. And that's prohibited in the Old Testament. You're not supposed to wear mixed clothes, right? Like that you're supposed to have. It's all cotton or all wool, whatever. And so you're a hypocrite. Do you eat shellfish, Chris? I do. Do you eat pig? I do. So, So you just borrow what you don't like, discard what you do like, discard what you don't like, and that's how you do it. Now, listen, this is a great point, and we need to address that. Because if you read Leviticus 18 and 20, they both say, you know, if if we believe homosexuality is wrong, they both say they should be put to death. And nobody talks like this. Why is it? Why is it that we take some things from the Old Testament and say, nope, not enforced today, and other things we say, well, yes, they are enforcing. Are we cherry picking? Are we just kind of going, like that, don't like that? Well, no. And let me tell you why. Jesus comes, and he says, I came to fulfill, right, to fulfill. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In other words, I'm not destroying. I didn't just say, hey, now I'm here, and now we're going to get rid of the Old Testament. Now let's just read our New Testament. That's what we should be. No, no, no. I didn't come to get rid of all that. I came to fulfill it. So in Jesus, all the requirements of the law are filled up in different ways, Okay, so, so what we do is we look at Christ and we look at the New Testament and go, okay, is there, how did Christ fulfill certain things? Are there certain things that we don't do now because of Christ? Yes. Why don't we all go to the temple in Jerusalem? Because Christ is the temple. Christ says, I'll be raised up in three days. Why don't we offer sacrifices anymore? Why are all the requirements about sacrifice, no, I, don't, I don't get up here and slaughter a lamb in front of you. You don't bring me a goat. Why? Because all those things are satisfied in Christ. Why do I now eat shellfish? Why do I love bacon? Why can we do all that? Because Christ said he's declared all foods clean. Jesus satisfied them in all these different ways. But there are these provisional laws of the Old Testament that don't come forward, and there are these transcultural laws that do. And one of the ways we know that is we look at the New Testament Okay, and we see what did the early church do? What did the apostles do? Are the moral laws, so if we go back and look at the moral laws, the, the laws that deal with the character of God or deal with sort of moral issues, are they restated in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. I am still required to love my neighbor as myself. Where's that come from? The Old Testament. I'm still required to care for the poor. Where's that come? The Old Testament. I'm still required to be generous with my possessions. Where's that come from? The Old Testament. I'm still required to be committed to my family, not commit adultery. Where's that come from? The Old Testament. So so when we get to the issue of homosexuality, we say, is there any transference? Do they transfer over to the New Testament? Is there any reinforcement of this holiness code in the New Testament? And if we say yes, then we say that's how we know that it transfers over. And that's exactly what happens. So in fact it transfers over in a way that it's very obvious that we're actually borrowing from the New Old Testament on the issue of homosexuality. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Okay, now, uh, uh, before I wanted you to see the gospel, this time I just want you to see, it talks about people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. One of those is men who practice homosexuality. Okay, that is a Greek translation of two words. One word is called malakos, which is the passive partner within sex, and the other one is, is arsenicoite, which is the active partner in homosexuality. Now, some will argue, okay, and I'm gonna, we're gonna have a little Greek class here, okay, so just bear with me. I'm not trying to be technical. I want you to see this. Some will argue that this word arsenicoite refers to. Male prostitution, which was common in Paul's day, and that's really what he's after, or it's referring to uh, another issue like called pederasty I'll deal with uh, that's man-boy love, so that what Paul is condemning is prostitution or rape, not what we know today as kind of consensual, faithful, committed, homosexual love. Now, that's very common. That's just simply not true. And I want to I show you linguistically what happened. In fact, most people believe that this word "arsenicoite" was coined by Paul. We don't have any instance in Greek literature of that word occurring before Paul said it. And the next occurrence we have is about 200 years later. Paul, we could say it this way, most likely invented that word. Where did he invent that word from? Before you throw it up there, guys, let me, let me talk for a second. There's this translation of, of Scripture. So, so before Paul was born and Jesus was born and they walked the earth, what we had was the Hebrew Bible, written in Hebrew. Some other Chaldean, some other, uh, but, but Hebrew. Some Greek scholars got together, and they created what we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus would have read the Septuagint. Paul would have read, they were very, this was very familiar in their day, okay? This, is, this was their Old Testament in many ways. I'm not saying they didn't speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, but they, they knew of the Septuagint, they most likely would have read it. Now, now watch this, because Paul writes in Greek, speaks in Greek, knows Greek very well, and what I want you to see is where did this word arsenokoite come from, okay? So let me, let me show you a couple things. Now, the top is Greek. That's what it reads like in, in the Septuagint, and the bottom is the English. So, so just listen to this. Meta arsenos ukomethesa koiten gunaikos. See the two italicized words, arsenos and koiten. Okay, that's Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. With a man, this is a translation, with a man, do not lie as one lies with a woman. Okay, how about Leviticus chapter 20? Hos and koimetha meta arsenos koiten gunaikos. What does that mean? Whoever lies with the man is one lies with a woman. This is Leviticus 2013. Where did Paul get this word? Leviticus. He goes and he says, I'm going to combine these. Arsenos, man, koite, sex. I'm going to put them together. This is, I'm describing homosexuality. Okay, so Paul puts these together and says, this is a word. I'm going to use a new word to describe what's going on. So, so so he, first, I want you to see this. What is this telling us? It tells us a couple of things. Paul didn't see Leviticus in 18, 18 and, and, and chapter 20 as simply being concerned with ritual purity. That's not at all the context he finds it in, right? He, 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 he can't be. The word arsenikoites applies to homosexual sex in a general way, which I showed you from Leviticus 18 and 20. So Paul is essentially answering the question for us, do we carry over this moral law about sexual ethics into the New Testament? And the answer is yes, I'm carrying it over. It still applies. Okay, let's, let's do another one. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And let's look at verse 26, and I'll give you some context here in a second. But Romans chapter 1, maybe the greatest letter ever written, and it is a brilliant Argument. So, so I don't mean Paul's arguing and being cantankerous. I'm saying he's building a logical argument because he wants to take people on a journey and, and, and he's gonna paint you and me into a corner Okay, so just, just we'll start though with verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, notice a couple of things. First, That both men and women for the first time are included. Okay, so Paul makes it clear both men and women are guilty when they exchange their natural relations for unnatural. What's he talking about? We said a man lies to the man, woman lies to the woman, natural, unnatural. What's he talking about? Because here's what will happen Some will argue and say, okay, yeah, I give you that, but homosexuality is natural for homosexuals, therefore it's not a violation of Romans 1. Do you hear the logic there? In other words, if, Chris, you're naturally heterosexual, so for you to have homosexual sex would be unnatural, okay? That, that's how the argument goes, and and you would fall under Romans 1, not me if I am if I am a homosexual, that's not unnatural for me. Okay, well, let's talk about that. First, that... That stretches and strains credulity in terms of what Paul means by natural. Natural does not, contrary to nature, when you use that, does not describe your and my subjective experience or feeling what is natural to me versus what is natural to you. What Paul is saying is this is the fixed way of creation that is obvious to everyone. And I say that because if you back up all the way to verse 18, Paul begins to construct this argument now. And look what he does. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know what's true. They simply suppress it. Look at what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Paul says, you know what? To look up at the sun, moon, and the stars, to see a giraffe and an elephant and a monkey and human beings and look at it and say, there is no God, you have to suppress the truth. You cannot stare these things in the face and say, there is no God. It's just, it's just plain, okay? So all of Paul's readers are going, you know, that's right. Oh yeah, we're with you, buddy. <laughs> okay, we, we believe. I, I'm Jew, I, I agree with this. Paul takes step two. Now let's look at human beings. Let's see how the fall has impacted them. And he begins to say, okay, so now uh, I look at a man and a man and a woman and a woman, and just as the creation, the universe, I can plainly see what creation, what, how, what God created. I can look at a man and woman, and I can see what God created. It's Paul's saying this, it's obvious. He's saying It's just plain. Men are not suited sexually to men. Women are not suited sexually to women. That's just obvious. I'm not trying to be crass. He's saying the parts don't go together. But when I look at a man and a woman, the parts go together. It's just. It's plain. It's clear. Now, this has nothing to do with desire or preference or what we find beautiful or what's natural to me versus what's natural to you. Paul is just saying, I'm making a universal argument here. Second, if we buy the logic that homosexual sex is only unnatural for heterosexuals, then you've just opened up a Pandora's box. Because if I'm gonna say that about one area of sex... I have to say that about all areas of sex. So so I would would have to respond to the man who says, well, yeah, I'm going to have an affair. I'm going to cheat on my wife. Or I could have to say to the young man or young woman who says, well, yeah, I sleep around with my boyfriend or with other guys or other gals. That's because I'm not naturally monogamous. That's why I do that. We'd have to say to the person, you know, what, what, what do we say? The guy who says, look, I, I naturally have a sexual desire toward my natural brother and sister. So incest isn't wrong for me. I am naturally attracted to animals so bestiality isn't wrong. Now, do not email me and say, you just called homosexual, you compare them with people with bestiality. No, I didn't. I said, once you open up one, you open up them all and sexual morality now has we have no basis to even talk about sexual morality because hey it's it's natural for me it's not natural for you right so, so, so here's Paul going, no, 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 we, we're not going to open up that. This is wrong. And everybody reading Romans, these Jews in Rome would have understood, yeah, yeah, we understand homosexuality is wrong. But here's the thing. The thing I want you to see here is the reason Paul chooses to talk about homosexuality in Romans 1 is because that it was a sin that everyone would have recognized as sin. So he wants them to do this. He wants to mention homosexuality and get them going, yeah. Yeah, that's wrong. We're with you, Paul. Okay, you with me on that? Let's keep going. Now let's talk about disobedient to parents. Oh, I think I'm still with you because I'm grown, so I'm out front. Okay, I'm I'm with you. Oh, is is that good? Then let's talk about you trying to be justified under the law. Wait, so he's going to paint 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 paint. So you're stuck in the corner and he's going to say in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. So for Paul, self-righteous judgment of homosexuality is just as much as a, a sin as homosexual activity is itself. You cannot sit in judgment and say, you know what, that's a terrible sin. I do more respectable things. No, Paul, Paul, that's the whole point of Romans. I'm going to make everybody have to cry uncle and go, oh, my gosh, for all the fingers I'm pointing at everybody else, it's pointing to me. I'm self-righteous. I'm prideful. I'm thinking my behavior is going to get me into heaven. And Paul says, never. Never. See, see, the greatest problem in our culture is not homosexuality. Because if it was, it would be the cure. The cure would be heterosexuality. And you can be, and you know lots of people who are perfectly heterosexual and miss Jesus. See, our greatest problem, according to Paul, according to Scripture, is that we have turned aside from God and the law won't turn us back. Being good won't turn you back. Obeying all the laws won't turn you back. Being straight won't turn you back. Only the grace of God in Christ can turn you back to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that therefore we throw away all the examples that Paul gives us. Oh, so if you just building an argument, then homosexuality is no big deal. No, no, they're real. These are real sins, Paul wants to get you to confess, to cry uncle, so that you go, oh my word, I am in need of the grace of God. Me, even me, who thought I was so holy and righteous and doing everything right. No, you. In fact, maybe you more than anybody. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is even. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and I'm not looking you know, down my nose at somebody and going, oh, really, you struggle with that? Oh, well, that's worse than me, so I'm good. No, if you're that, you're like the Pharisee in Luke who went to pray to God. and He didn't even pray to God, he prayed to himself. God, I'm glad I'm not like him. And the Bible says, God didn't even hear him, but the tax collector comes and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Luke says, which one walked away justified? The answer, the one who said, I'm a sinner in need of grace. Everybody is. Okay, so, so look, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, here's what I want you to see. There is not one hint, nowhere, never, that homosexuality or any form of sexual immorality is acceptable to God. The Bible affirms homosexuality uh, affirms that, 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 that homosexuality is wrong from beginning to end. And if you deny that, that sexual morality in any form, then you deny the plain teaching of Scripture. I mean, listen to this. Here's a guy, Luke Timothy Johnson. He is a pro-gay professor from Emory University And he says, let me talk about this idea of finding homosexuality in Scripture and trying to approve of it. So I'm going to put it on on, on the screen so you can see it. He says, the task of doing this demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says to appeal to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but... What are we to do with what the text says? And here's the hinge. I think it's important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? Our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. If you are willing to say, I don't agree with scripture, I don't want to listen to scripture, okay. But if you start with your experience and say, I'm going to filter my interpretation of Scripture through my experience, you can and will make Scripture say anything you want it to say, anything. So let's kind of just summarize. What's the Bible telling us? First, God takes sin, including homosexuality. Not only homosexuality, God takes sin seriously. So if you are actively engaged in a homosexual lifestyle and unrepentant about it, this is key, you will, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, not inherit the kingdom of God. But let me say this, if you are actively involved in any sin and unrepentant about it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, did you see the list that Paul puts that with? Like greed? Greed. Some of you are so stingy and you don't care what the Bible says. That, you know what? i to give back to God. I had to be generous with my money to other people. No, I'm just greedy with it. And the Bible says, look, if you're that way and you're unrepentant, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 1, you're disobedient to parents. Screw them. I don't care what they have to say you won't inherit the kingdom of God, any sin. God takes sin very, very seriously. But second, homosexual sin can be overcome is part of the teaching of Scripture. And I want to be clear in what I'm saying here. and very careful. I believe God can and does change people, fundamentally change them. I mean, that's, the gospel tells us this over and over. He takes rebellious sinners like you and me and he turns us into joyful servants of Christ. And I believe that God can take someone who identifies as a homosexual and reorient their desires to heterosexuality. I believe it happens. I know it's happened. There's testimonies of people that that's happened to. But here's what I would say to you. Foothill Church, hear me. I think that's probably rare. And I'm not saying just with homosexuals. I'm saying whatever sin you struggle with. I think... I think there are some people and I would say all of us to one degree or another will struggle with sin until the day we die. For some that will be same sex attraction. For some of us that will be lust, for some of us that will be lying, for some, whatever. I mean name your sin and you'll struggle with it. We are not eradicationists that believe when you come to Jesus it all goes away. Does that happen? Yes, it actually happens. There's some people that go, "You know what? My father-in-law, his testimony is I came to Jesus. I was drinker, I was I was a, you know, a chain smoker or whatever and God, boom, I had no desire." That happens. Now, do I think my father-in-law's testimony is typical? No, I think it's probably rare. Paul says Romans chapter 7. I do things I don't want to do. I don't do things I know I'm supposed to do. I can't help it. It's like there's this war going on in me, and he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus leads us in triumphal procession. That's the hope of Scripture. But holiness is messy, and we have to be patient, and it's working in us, and it's doing things. So yes, God changes people, but look at sometimes, it takes a lot of time. So I think when it, when it comes to the homosexual issue, here, here, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that when I say sin can be overcome that you're going to be cured of all your homosexual desires. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul says such were some of you, and here's what he means. Your identity is no longer bottled up in your sin. I am no longer the person I was. Do I still struggle? Yes, but that's not me. I'm now a child of God. I was bought. I was sanctified. I was washed. I've been justified. My identity now is in Christ. Am I tempted? Yeah, I'm tempted. Sometimes I fall. But thanks be to God that he leads us. He does something in our hearts. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so now let's do this let's just talk about some of the common questions that arise around this subject. I'm talking about kind of like the culture. When you go out, you're going to hear these kind of things, and how do we respond to them? What's a, what's a Christian biblical response to some of these questions? Number one, the first question you might hear is something like, isn't love the overarching theme of the Bible? So above everything is love, and what could possibly be wrong with two people who are in love? Okay, now, you know what? That, that's a a great question and it sounds so reasonable and we find ourselves like I don't know what to say well let's look at what the Bible says right in fact the Bible does say love your neighbor as yourself right Jesus says by this they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another so love is a huge ethic in scripture but what does it really mean can we just say if there's love in a relationship it can't be wrong? There's no possible way we can say that. If I run away from Michelle tonight because I love another person, nobody's going to say, "Well, that's okay cuz you love her. You love each other." But but let's look at actually what Jesus says. Go back to Matthew chapter 22. And, and let's just look at how this comes out of Jesus' mouth. He says, they ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And he says to them in verse 37, Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So there you go. Number one, love God. Now, number two, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On These, the two, command, these two commandments depend the All the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament is fleshing out those two things. Love God. Love God first, then love your neighbor. And you dare not reverse those. We dare not put the love of men um, and women above the love of God. Okay, So, so, so there is a hierarchy to this. And we don't reverse them and put them uh, above, you know, one above the other. We put, we put love of God first, love of man second. And this is exactly when we get to 1 John 5, 2. John, the apostle, says this. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do I know you love me and how do you know I love you? How does Michelle know I love her? How do my kids know I love them? John tells us. Not because I say I feel ooey gooey for you. It's when We love God and obey his commandments. Did you hear what he said? you hear the logic of that? My love for you is when I love God and obey his commandments. And if his commandments tell me I can't participate in a certain kind of activity, sexual or not, heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter, then that's the way I love you. I don't do it because I love God, and that's the way I love you. And if I ignore what he tells me to do and out of love for you engage in that activity, sexual, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, then John says, I don't really love you. Because if I did, I would do what God commanded first, then I would love you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself till I learn to love God. And I cannot love God except by learning to obey him. Okay, how about this one? I was born gay. Homosexuality is genetic. Well, I think anybody who's taking an honest look at it—okay, now I'm not again—I'm not even going to fight about this one. I'm just going to tell you there's tons of studies. I read lots of them this week, and and uh, that 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 have been done on twins, for example, genetic studies. I mean, so and they and they found you know how many of them were both. I mean, identical twins. So they share all the same genetics. Okay, how many of them? And 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 a very low percentage of them, in fact, are both gay. So the jury is still out. Now, let's suppose we wake up tomorrow and the jury is now conclusively determined there is something called a gay gene or something where that that actually genetically codes you as a homosexual. Does that change? What do we say to that? Well, it doesn't change anything. And let me explain that. Because our Bible teaches us that the fall of man, like Genesis chapter 3, impacted everything. I mean, I mean, literally everything. It was so utterly catastrophic. This was not a naked man and woman eating an apple, and that sounds so innocent. It's like this little serenic scene. It was so horrific and catastrophic that it absolutely dominates everything every square inch of our human existence, including our genetics. So what that means is that every part of creation, every part of my nature, including sexual activity, needs to be redeemed. Let me do it this way. I am, scientifically speaking, a genetically coded heterosexual male. Okay, which means I am genetically predisposed toward sex with females. Now, my Bible won't contradict that. It'll say that's exactly right. What it'll say is, Chris, that's a really good thing when it's directed toward your wife. That's a really bad thing when it's directed toward women in general. If I simply let my genetic predisposition guide my moral behavior, that would mean I would try to have sex with as many women as possible. And nobody would say that's a good thing. Right? You would rightly go, you can't be our pastor anymore. But wait a minute, that's just genes. So a predisposition does not compel behavior. I mean, what if it's determined that there is a gene that they isolate that leads to pedophilia, that leads to sexual morality or promiscuity? What if they isolate a gene that leads to um, drug addiction, a gene that leads to murder? Would we ever? I I can't think of a society that would be prepared to excuse everything as genetically coded and say, God made them that way, that's got to be okay for them. Okay, how about this one? Super common, Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Heard this? Like I just heard it the other day again. Piers Morgan, yelling match and you know, yeah but, name me one verse where Jesus addressed homosexuality. Okay, name me one verse where Jesus said a man must not beat his wife. Name me one verse where he said child abuse is wrong. Name me one verse where he mentioned crack addiction. Name me one verse where he said any of these kinds of things. This is the worst possible argument and I got to be honest people if, if you've said something like that I want to push on you especially if you're a Christian because that tells me something fundamental about the way you view your Bible like are we all clear that when I open up the gospel so here I am in Matthew 22 that the red words are not better than the black ones I'm, I'm not sure some of you know that. Like, you know, you, know, you know, John or Matthew weren't sitting there writing, and they had black ink, and were like, oh, it's Jesus' words. There's a red ink well. There, I'll go there. No. That's done by an editor. It's to help you. Help me. Oh, Jesus said that, probably. Okay? Do you understand that we don't read the Gospels and say the Gospels are more important than Paul? So that we know from, from Scripture that all Scripture is God-breathed, not, not just the Gospels. So we don't, we don't rip apart our Bible. We say it all points in the same direction, all points to Jesus. And the Gospels certainly tell us about Jesus and help us understand what Jesus was like and what he said and what he taught and all that. We need the Gospels. But, but we don't read them and go, we yank this and we let, we let the Gospels challenge everything else in Scripture. We don't all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable for rebuke and correction training in righteousness all of it from genesis to revelation second, second I, I think this is weak because look at G- jesus didn't talk about all kinds of things like i said and 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 to, i mean and at one point in fact he affirms the nature of marriage and that's between one man and one woman in a one flesh union he talks about that but to say he didn't talk about homosexuality and act as though that's a great argument, well, I could say the same thing. I could say, well, from silence, I can argue and say, no, Jesus, the reason Jesus didn't talk about it is because he just, it was assumed that it was wrong. That's just as valid of argument. So this assumes that Jesus would have spoken about and, and, the, and the early writers would have written about everything that he disapproved of. That's simply not true. Like, like think about this. John tells us in John, what, chapter 20, that he says, uh, these things are written that, you, that you, 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 you'll know about Christ, you'll come to eternal life. And then he says, not everything that Jesus did has been written here. In fact, if we wrote everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill up libraries. We just have what they told us. He might have talked about homosexuality, but still, it's a weak argument. Number four, isn't it true that Paul was mostly concerned with exploitive forms of homosexuality like pederasty? Well, pederasty was a very common form of homosexuality within uh, the Roman Empire during Paul's day. What is that? Again, I talked about it earlier. That's when a, a man takes a young boy as his lover, and I'm sure that Paul was concerned with it. I have no doubt that Paul was concerned with it, but he wasn't only concerned with that. However, right, if he was solely concerned with it, there there is a common Greek word. Our word is pederasty. Guess what the Greek word is? Pederastes. Paul could have just said, "You shouldn't do this." Like this pederasty is wrong. He didn't do that. Rather, he coins a new word in the Greek language to make sure he captures a prohibition against homosexuality in general. In addition, to say that this is only, that that, that what the Bible prohibits is only exploitive or uh, sort of predatory or some kind of sex like that is just plain wrong. Romans 1, we read it just a minute ago. It says, men burned with passion for other men. I mean, there's this consensual, I, I like you, you like me. We love each other. We want to have sex with each other. And he says that, 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 that it was a consensual, it was a desire for both of them. Paul knew about pederasty, and he knew about consensual homosexuality. Listen, there, there's plenteous proof that in that day, homosexuality in general, consensual homosexual love was recognized. And he condemns it in any and every form. Okay, how about this? Number five, homosexuality isn't wrong if it's, co- if it's in a committed, faithful, and monogamous relationship. Now again, very compelling, right? Why do we want to, to say that if they love each other and they're committed and this is a lifelong thing, right? So some, some would say, yep, yeah, okay, I get it. We understand promiscuous, promiscuity, gay or straight. That kind of lifestyle is wrong. But what about two people who genuinely love each other and are faithful to each other? Well, let me say a few things about that. First, you have to agree with this. Committed, faithful, long-term does not equal God-approved. It can't possibly. In fact, just turn sometime. I'm not going to take time to go through it, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And what you have in 1 Corinthians 5 is, a, is, is Paul rebuking the Corinthian church. This is a wild church and saying, look, it, there's a man in your church, he says. And, and the news is that he is in a sexual relationship, listen to this, with his father's wife. Now, most scholars find that so creepy that they back away and go it must be a stepmom. Well, I don't know. It might be as creepy as it sounds. It might be a step- either way it's wrong. And Paul goes, "Look. You're all being open-minded. You think you're being gracious. I'm telling you no, that needs to stop." Paul doesn't care if their relationship is loving. He doesn't care if it's committed, it probably was. He doesn't care if it's long-term. He doesn't care if it's monogamous. He says, it's wrong. I'm not interested in all that. This has to stop. Faithful, committed, long-term monogamous can still be sin. I can leave Michelle tonight and enter into a faithful, long-term, monogamous, committed relationship with another woman, and you would rightly look me in the face and say, repent. It's wrong. Okay. So let me bring it in for a landing. How do we respond? What do we say? What do we do? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is repent. And I am talking here specifically to the church And especially to the side of the church that has treated homosexuality as this ultimate sin and refused to see our own self righteousness. And my hope is this not only awakens you to what the Bible says about homosexuality, and okay, yes, it's wrong, and yes, it's a sin, but to the depth of your sin, to the depth of your need for grace. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And God isn't asking homosexuals to go to the back of the line. If anything, he's asking smug, self-righteous people that don't see their need to go to the back of the line. We have to repent. Number two, we should make it easy for those struggling with same-sex attraction to talk about their struggle. Growth group leaders, this is part of my prayer for you and for your groups. And listen, here's what I'd say it's not just about homosexuality. We need to make it easy for, for any sin struggle to be brought into the light. Right? We have to be open. We have to go, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And we don't revel in that. We're going to go, yep, so I sin, and isn't this great? No, it's not a celebration. It's a mourning, but it's, a, it's saying something is grieving me, and I've hid this thing in the dark, and now I want to bring it into the light so that the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ can shine on it and I can, I can be conformed to the image of, of Jesus. That's what I want. I don't want to hide in this thing because it's killing me, and I, I don't want to hide I mean, how else can the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ be felt in our community if people can't come out and say, man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with porn. I'm struggling with homosexuality. I'm I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with whatever. Pray for me. Help me. I want to battle against this. And that's where the gospel comes in and says, yes, only the sick need a doctor. And we're all sick. Number three, we should honor singleness. You know, because somebody's single and s- chooses to stay single doesn't mean they're gay. And we, we shouldn't be holding up in front of people as though the end all be all of existence and certainly Christian existence is that you get married and have a family. Is that a wonderful gift? Yes. And Paul will say, so is singleness, it's a gift. So singles are not somehow treated among us as less than married couples. You know, they're, they're, they fail to grow up. They fail to launch, whatever. Marriage is not the ultimate goal. Jesus is the ultimate goal. Number four, we shouldn't stereotype masculinity or femininity. And you know what? How many of us are guilty of this? How, how, how guilty am I of this? Like, you know, the way we talk, as though all men do certain things. If you're a man, then you've got a .30-06 rifle with a scope on it, and you go out in the woods, and you get in a tree stand, and you get a deer 300 yards away, and you just take him out which I say, no, if you're a man, you get naked, you go to the woods, you grab a knife, and you kill it with your bare hands. That's a man, right? <laughs> like somehow all men love football and burping and farting and, and drinking beer, and that's what we do. And all women like pink and wear bows and sew and cooking, and, right? So, so we've stereotyped these things. God created men and women in His image. Men and women. And we reflect God in all kinds of ways. So men who cry and feel deeply are still men. And women who don't cry and love football are still women. (laughs) Number five, we should pray that the gay people find their way to Foothill Church. Church, I hope you want this. I hope you want 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 to be true of Foothill Church. So that if a gay couple shows up at Foothill Church, we don't assault them. We go, God, thank you. So, if somebody engaged in sexual morality shows up, we say thank you. They're going to hear the gospel. We don't look at them as different or weird or icky or whatever. We look and we go, you know what? You're one of us. In the sense that we all are sinners in need of grace. That's our church. That we are desperate sinners, desperately in need of grace. And listen, if you get to a place, where you think that's not true, that somehow your sin is not so bad, you better fall on your knees and repent. And then they come, and we don't make every conversation, you know, hey, before we have any other conversation, I need to talk about your homosexuality any more than we would say that to a guy and a girl who were sleeping together in a relationship. The issue is not homosexuality, it's not heterosexuality. The issue is Jesus. And look at if they, and and the issue is friendship. You understand? This is people we're talking about, they're not a project. And you really befriend them and you really love them and then if God brings it up or they bring it up, fine, you deal with it. You bring it out of the open. Yes, I believe this. Yes, I feel this way. Yes, I think this is what the Bible teaches but I'm not here to condemn you to hell. I'm not here to sit in judgment. I'm telling you what I think the Bible says and that we both need to line up our lives and they should be able to look you back in the face and say, yeah, and you've got a log in your eye and both of you by the grace of God, repent and grow. See, see, church, listen. People need to know Jesus before being confronted with what he demands. You hear what I'm saying? We cannot confront them with his demands before they've experienced the grace of God. We cannot. They're not capable. No one, you and I weren't capable. You cannot live in light of God's grace until you first experience God's grace. And that's my prayer for everyone who walks through these doors. Every one of us will, will be confronted with our sin. You know, we're gonna take communion in a little bit. And it's so easy to just make "Yeah, body and blood. Body and blood, body and blood. Little juice, little, little Bread. Do you understand what that means? Your sin was so horrific that it cost Christ, his God, his one and only Son, to pay for it. It wasn't. I look down and I see homosexuality. That's what I'm. Kind of, of course, I came for that. I came for pride. I came for lust. I came for greed. I came for disobedience. I came for rebellion. I mean, there's all this sin. Your sin, my sin was that bad. And we ought to, every time we partake in communion, realize this is huge. This is how deep and awful my sin is, not the guy sitting next to me. I want to be a church like that. Let's pray.